Hey, um, we're in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. I'm very um, excited, very grateful, almost like humbled to teach through this text um, because it's one of those texts you don't come across very often where in such a way it just focuses on the, perf- the person of Jesus and elevates him and, and lifts him up as he, as he is. And uh, it's just a, an incredibly powerful text. You know, we're not in a rush, by the way, to walk through this. We're going to go through four verses today. So this is not like us speeding down the freeway. This is us taking the scenic route and just kind of enjoying the views a little bit. Um, I don't know if whatever you, comes to your mind when you think of like the most beautiful places on earth or something you've been like wowed by. Um, for us, it's like Yosemite. My wife and I just go in through this little tunnel and you kind of hit Yosemite Valley and you're like, what, where am I? Is this on earth? And there's certain places you're like, I just want to kind of stop, hit pause, take it in. Like, what am, I, what am I looking at right now? Paul, in such a way, describes the person of Jesus as he is, as we need to see him. And I don't want to rush through this. We're going to read the text today and even go back to this text a little bit next week. Um, but it's just one of those texts where it's like, Jesus, we just want him to be lifted up and elevated as he is. Uh, this is the text where Paul is saying, Jesus is preeminent. He's not prominent. Jesus is not important. He's preeminent. He's over everything. He's above everything. Um, That Jesus is why we're here. Jesus is why we exist. It's why we do church. It's why we gather. It's why we sing songs. It's because of the person of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. This is just like, uh, if you look at like Christology, the study of, of Christ, the study of the Messiah, probably Colossians 1, Philippians 2, just some of the most powerful texts we have on the person of Jesus. It's, it's debated a bit, but not, not really. But um, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, 23, it's a text that's viewed as actually not just like, a, like a poetic hymn. It's actually believed that what we're about to read was a creed that the early church would recite about the person of Jesus. A creed meaning, meaning this is a statement of belief that the church would maybe share, utter, say out loud, worship, sing to, potentially. Like it's a hymn. It's a creed. It's something to just stand back and say, we need to get right who the person of Jesus is. Obviously, I believe the most important question in life, I really believe this, the most important question in life is the question, who is Jesus? How do you define Jesus? Is he just a man, a good guy, prophet? Who is Jesus? Paul's like, let me tell you who Jesus is. And so this was a a creed, like I said, or a hymn, and and so um, I just want to read this. I want to slow down a bit. I want to jump into the text, yes, but um, I'm going to do this just because I believe, you know, this was a creed or a hymn. This is such a lofty view of Jesus. Um, I just want to do something different. I want to stand for the reading of Scripture today as we read Colossians 1.15. So would you stand with me, and I'm going to do my best to set the pace <laughs> for this. Some of you tell me I speak at 2.0. I'm going to try to go to 1.0, Okay. <laughs> Never mind. I'm just kidding. All right. Colossians 1.15, if you would, just we're going to read verse 15 to 18 today. Colossians 1.15, you can read with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Stay standing. Father, we just want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us and redeeming us with the precious blood of your son, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Lord, we just ask that um, even if we're familiar with texts like this, that you would make it new again to us, that as we sung earlier, as we prayed, that Jesus, who you are, your name, what you've done, that you'd still rescue, you'd still redeem, that you'd still move in hearts today, that you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and God, we just ask it, I ask for my life and for our lives collectively, that if you haven't been that, that you would be that today. That, Lord, if you've been taking a, a back seat in some way, that, Jesus, you would be preeminent, that you'd be over it all. We just want to thank you, Jesus, and praise you in your precious name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. As I mentioned last week, um, in the book of Colossians, or in this city, this was not um, a city Paul's actually visited. Uh, Paul's, one of Paul's guys, a, a guy who got saved named Epaphras, gets saved, goes back home, starts telling people about Jesus. God uses an ordinary person, no title. He's not Epaphras the apostle, just a guy who loves Jesus, gets the word out. A church is born, a church is growing. Paul's in prison. Epaphras goes back and is like, God is doing something amazing in this city, in this, in this church, um, but there's some things going on. If you guys remember, we mentioned this uh, Colossae a heresy. There was a heresy that, you know, is still talked about, whether it originated in Colossae or went there. Um, there's, there's this heresy where it was basically Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism can kind of take on some different forms, but the idea is, uh, it, at least when it was applied to Jesus here, that Jesus, uh, his death and resurrection, he never really rose again physically. It was a spiritual resurrection. Gnosticism kind of views material as evil, spiritual as good, as we mentioned. And so Jesus' resurrection, they say, was more, it was more figurative. It was more spiritual in nature. And Jesus is important, but he's not who these Christians are claiming he is. And it's basically a knockoff version of Jesus. And we have to understand that in every era, in every part of the world, there's all these knockoff versions of Jesus, where we make a caricature out of Jesus. And listen, I, I want us to hear this, because we're, it's not just people out there. Um, many, even Christians, they don't deny the importance of Jesus, but we dethrone him. And I think this is important to know. I think a lot of us, I, maybe you're like, I don't deny that Jesus is important, but you dethrone him meaning he's not in his rightful place. You say, maybe even, I love Jesus. I mean, I care for Jesus. And he's very prominent, but he's not preeminent. Paul is saying Jesus is preeminent. He's over it all. He can't just have like an important place in your life. He has to be the place. Like he is the center. And it's, it's scary because we might even with our voice or with our words say Jesus is preeminent with our lifestyle, not display that. Paul is addressing, I think, in, in a couple ways, it was like syncretism. It's like taking a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of that faith, a little bit of that worldview and combining it. 
There's also Judaizers who are saying it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you must also keep the Torah to this level, to this extent, and even that lessens the person of Jesus. And the reason why I think this is so important is we still do this today. We make caricatures out of Jesus. Now, when I say caricature, you know what that is, right? It's like whenever you go to like a theme park, there's always someone like, you want to sit down and I'll paint your face? And you're like, no, it's, it's like so embarrassing, right? Like you have one feature, like maybe your nose is big. Maybe I've been told that. I don't know. And maybe they just draw a gigantic nose or something. Did they already put it up? I don't know. I was actually asked to, um, uh, years ago, be a part of this like high school caricature, you know, portrait thing is like, oh, these high schoolers are trying to learn how to draw caricatures. This is when I had no beard and this is younger, fitter Josiah. But I think there's two versions. I don't know. Uh, but the way I think the second one got my eyebrows, I'm like, hey, hey, that's not cool. Um, <laughs> you know, right? The way they do these things, they'll take like a feature and they exaggerate it. You can definitely put those away. Um, I have no idea what you're seeing, but the idea was this. They'll take a, a feature and just exaggerate it. Like, you know, um, Steve Carell. We all know Steve Carell. You know, loving guy. But they'll take his nose and make it very long. Like, yo, that, that probably hurts a little, I'm guessing. Um, and it, we're not, I'm not just talking physically about the person of Jesus, but we make caricatures out of Jesus. Meaning, um, we like an element of Jesus and only that element. We go, man, Jesus is the most loving person on earth. And for you, you make a caricature out of Jesus where he's this really loving guy. He's kind of like a hippie Jesus who just walks around and like, holds up a finger like, peace and love. And that's your, your version of Jesus. Maybe you don't see, no, Jesus who actually cares about righteousness or Jesus who actually longs to see holiness in his followers' lives. Or maybe you're on the other end where all you care about is holiness and you don't see the grace and love of Jesus. The point being, we do this all the time to Jesus. We have like the Jesus is my homeboy. Like we have these little caricatures of Jesus. And you can see it on TV shows. You can see it in movies. You'll hear like a subtle undertone of like Jesus where he's maybe important, maybe prominent, but he's not preeminent. And it's, it's bizarre to me because you'll see that and it's like, well, they kind of spoke in a good way of Jesus, but not in the way he truly is as Paul describes him. It's not enough for Jesus just to be really good or really smart, or really righteous, or we should follow his teachings and values. It's not enough. What Paul here says about Jesus, it just changes everything. He's like, let me tell you who Jesus is. If there's something in our hearts today, I, I want us to see the person of Jesus as he is, as he revealed himself to us, as he made himself known, and what that means in our lives. There's just countless, countless ideas of Jesus. And you probably met them. You probably met everyone who has some version of Jesus. Uh, there's a book called Vintage Jesus, and this author named Gary Brashear wrote this. He says, at first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never held a political office, never wrote a book, never married, never had sex, never attended college, never visited a big city, and never won a poker tournament. He died both homeless and poor. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar is divided into the years before and after his birth, as noted as B.C. and A.D., uh, respectively. He says, no army, nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus has, the, home, the homeless man has. 
the person of Jesus, man, is something that everyone has an opinion on and perspective on. And again, we're trying to go, who, who is the biblical Jesus? How does Jesus make himself known? How does Paul see Jesus? How did the early church see Jesus? What kind of doctrines were coming into the church where it's lessening the person of Jesus? It's saying, believe in Jesus and keep the Torah. Or Jesus is prominent, very important, but he's just one of the many emanations from God like the Gnostics believed. Again, they had a high, high view of Jesus, but not high enough. And I, again, this is so important because it's not just them then, but we do this today. You might have an extremely high view of Jesus, but is it high enough? And I want us to see the preeminent Jesus. So what Paul is introducing, when he says, if you notice our passage, he's like, over all things, all things, all things. He's trying to show the preeminence of Jesus. So three points today, we'll walk through it. Number one is this, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Jesus is preeminent over creation. Look again at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Before we get to the second part, the firstborn of all creation. Listen to that phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God made visible. Uh, this word image is this word icon. It's just almost like this. It just means exact replica, photograph. If you took a picture of God, like on those old school Polaroids, not that you can, you go ka and like what would print out is Jesus. That's the idea. He is the icon, the exact replica, replication. He is, he is God in the flesh. He is the vi- invisible made visible. This is what he's getting at. We'll get later next week, we'll talk more about how the fullness of God dwells in him, and we'll see, like, we'll talk through the Trinity a bit, because I know that's a, a topic, but um, I want us to really see this, as Jesus said in John 14. When Thomas is talking to Jesus, and Jesus is talking to the disciples, Thomas goes, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. What was Jesus' response? He goes, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the icon, the image of the invisible he is the, the vi- invisible made visible. I cannot stress this enough. If there's a doctrine we do need to understand, I, and I, I get that people struggle with this, but it's this idea of the revelation of God. Um, I love this because C.S. Lewis writes a lot about this. There's a lot of authors who write about this. It's very powerful, but the idea is this. Um, if there is a God, which obviously we believe there is, no one's ever going to just stumble across God. That's not how it works. It's not like you're going to stumble across like a deserted island somewhere like, oh, I found God on this island. Like, you're not going to find him in that way. I think how C.S. Lewis put it, it's almost like Hamlet doesn't know, and like, you know, Shakespeare who wrote Hamlet, he doesn't know that there's a Shakespeare. He doesn't know that there's an author, unless Shakespeare put himself in the story, unless he revealed himself and put himself in the story. It's not like he's going to be walking around the castle and be like, I found Shakespeare. No, he's the author. The author would have to make himself known and kind of put him in the story. The only way we'd ever know God is if God revealed himself to us. We're not going to look up into outer space or look down through a microscope and find God. This idea of the revelation of God is that God must reveal himself. God must make himself known. There's no other way we could know God unless God revealed himself. He has to reveal himself. Now, the question is how? And obviously, there's a lot of different faiths, a lot of different religions, and maybe there's different prophets. As Christians, we claim that God made himself known to us through the person of Jesus. That John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus came to us, that God's like, you want to see me? Look at my son. Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What an audacious claim. He's saying, I am the invisible made visible. If you want to know, maybe you struggle with this, how do I know God is loving? Look at Jesus. How do I know God is compassionate? 
Look at Jesus. How do I know that God hates sin and wants to do something about it? Look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is the idea. He is the image of the invisible God. There's certain phrases here, like I said in Colossians. Well, that's why we're going through four verses. You just got to sit in for a little bit. It's almost like hard, like, teach on this. Like, I, I want you to, like, let this sink in your heart. He is the image of the invisible God. What is God like? Look at Jesus. The reason why I'll be like, just keep reading through the Gospels. I don't care if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again. Like, just keep reading. What, what, what would God do in this circumstance? Look at Jesus. It's like we look to the person of Jesus to understand the character and nature of God. As God walked among us in the flesh, the Word, the Word that was always, that always existed, walked among us. He's the invisible made visible. So here's what Paul is saying. Uh, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Uh, if you would even look at how he says it, he says the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn. Now, if you know anything about this verse, this is a verse where a lot of people get tripped up on. Jehovah's Witnesses, if they've ever come to your door and they knock, and I kind of mentioned them last week, but if they ever knock on your door and be like, can I tell you about Jesus? You're like, oh, here we go. They're probably going to point to Colossians 1.15. And they're probably going to look at, see, Jesus, look at, he's a created being, firstborn. And they use this verse to say, look at, Jesus was born, firstborn, like you have a firstborn son. Um, here's how this word is. The, the word is prototokos in Greek, and it's not saying uh, he's first in sequence, but in priority. That is how the word is. That's how it's used. So it's not that Jesus is the firstborn like in sequence, like I have my firstborn Micah, then my second Kinsley. It's saying, no, no, he is the firstborn of all. He's priority, prototokos, over all creation. He has, pr he has priority over everything, even creation itself. This is the point Paul is trying to make, and this is very profound. He's saying, Jesus, again, is not, speaks not to sequence, but to priority. He's over it all. He's the first. He has priority over all creation. I do want us to take that in, that all things were created by him and for him and through him, that Jesus is not a created being because all things were created through him. Again, Paul's just trying to make the point. Jesus is not prominent. He's not important. Mormons might view Jesus as important, but not God. Jehovah's Witnesses might say, basically, he's an angel, but he's not God. He is God in the flesh. He's the invisible made visible. He is the prototokos over creation, the priority first over it all. All things created through him. Are you, are you following me with this? This changes so much. Like when you think about how just creation itself longs to just bow towards God. As Jesus is, you know, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they're crying out, Hosanna, save us, save now, and Jesus is like, if they, if they weren't going to worship, the rocks and the trees would cry out. I mean, even creation would just respond to Jesus in this way. I absolutely love this. Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's over it all. You know, it's kind of fun to stand back once in a while, like, I don't know, sometimes I'll listen to podcasts, and there's, like, some science guy on, and you get to hear, like, about creation, and you're like, that's actually really incredible. And I don't know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, I'm like, we're, it's so weird, right? If you don't believe in a God, it just, just blows me away, like, if you really don't believe in a God, and here we are, just like this little ball, like, floating throughout the universe, we're actually going pretty fast. We're rotating, and the galaxy's moving, and we're moving. It's, it's kind of like, you're like, yeah, I'm just hoping we don't hit anything. It's like kind of unbelievable, you know, when you think about it. But I, I love this. I was like doing some research on this and reading about this and just think about creation. 
Think about it in this way. Here's like the context of just how big this universe is. 1.3 million Earths can fit inside the sun. Maybe you've heard that. 1.3 million Earths can fit inside the sun. This is up here. Put it, please put it up. Nine billion suns can fit in a star called the Canis Majoris. So 1.3 million Earths can fit in the sun. Insane. The sun's big. But this, so if 1.3 million Earths fit in the sun, nine billion suns can fit in another star called the Canis Majoris. That's a big star. I've only named, I've only named two stars. <laughs> There's supposedly, scientists believe, there's 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way, in our galaxy. There's 100,000. I don't even know what that means. Do you know what that means? That's a lot of zeros, all right? And so it's like, think about the two stars I just mentioned. And there's 100,000 million in the, in the Milky Way. I like this next one. They estimate there's around 200 billion galaxies. So I talked about our galaxy, the Milky Way, 100,000 million. Now there's probably 200 billion of those galaxies. And then... There's approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. I don't even know what sextillion is. That's what it says. It's like up to sextillion. That's big, all right? And it's fun when you like look at this and think about this, and you go, oh my gosh. And God just speaks it into existence. And it's, it's weird. Like you keep zooming out, zooming out, zooming out, and you go, man, Jesus is the prototokos. Paul says over creation. That Romans 8, I love what Paul says. Like all of creation itself even groans to be redeemed by God. That sin affected everything, even creation. He's over it all. He's the Lord of all. The whole reason why I'm bringing this up and just even talking about this, there's this element where you realize, okay, he is God and I'm not. What this should lead you and I to is this posture of worship and saying, there is this reality that everything ultimately points to Jesus and it's all for him. We would call it this eschatological reality, this, like, this end time reality that everything is for Jesus and moving towards the person of Jesus. When you read Revelation 4 and 5, it's, it's truly unbelievable. We're not going to read it now, but Paul is taken, or sorry, John is taken to heaven, and he has this vision, and the first thing he sees in heaven is this throne. And he describes it with colors, like emeralds, and he doesn't, he's like, I can't really use language, you know, so he's describing it as best as he can. And he sees these 24 elders, he sees these four living creatures, he just sees all of heaven's focus and attention is on the throne. And here's what it says in Revelation 4, uh, verse 11. Revelation 4, 11, it says, the people are crowned, the 24 elders, they're, they're crowned, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Notice that the, like the heaven's worship is centered around even just creation. Like, just God, you created all things. We wouldn't be here if you didn't do this. Like, you receive all glory and honor, like, by your will, by your will we exist. All of heavens, all of earth. I just love that creation or that heaven's worship is focused on this idea of creation. Heaven's like upset. Like it's amazing to think that God speaks and things from nothing become something. And it's saying Jesus is the prototokos. He, he's over that. He's the priority of that. All things created through him and for him and by him. Paul couldn't be any more clear. Jesus is not some created being a part. He's not part of creation. Think creation came from him, stemmed from him. I love this because if you remember in the book of Nehemiah, and, and this is such a cool thing, they're, they're building the wall, they're rebuilding the city, they're doing some awesome things. We went through Nehemiah years ago, but uh, they discovered the law of God again. Like they found the word of God, they're reading through the word of God in Nehemiah 9. They're like, this is amazing, we have the Torah, this is unbelievable. And it says this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is their worship service. This is what they cried out. They said, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Notice their worship. It's just based on, like, God, you're over it all. 
the heaven of heavens, everything on earth, everything on the sea or under in the sea. God, you're over it all. Wait, and, and then it's saying in Colossians that it's through Jesus all these things were created. I thought they said you and you alone, O Lord. Paul's making the connection that Jesus is God. You and you alone, O Lord, created the heavens. Jesus, all things created by him and for him and through him. He is over all of creation. He's the prototokos. He has the priority over it all. If you don't get it, they're connecting God, the creator, to Jesus, the creator. And not only that, they say you preserve them. You sustain them. We, life could not go on and on without you. Like, not only did you create it. It's not like God, again, created, like some deists believe that God created it and walked away. God created it, but he sustains it. There's this common grace. God pours out his grace in us in a unique way. He, can, he continues the world in its order. And I love this. Um, A.T. Robertson, one author, says, the permanence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than on gravity. It is a Christ-centric universe. Just the universe itself, it just rests on the person of Jesus. As verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's just the universe itself rests on Jesus. The point Paul is trying to make is Jesus is not prominent. Creation, in a sense, bows the knee to him. Creation worships him. Heaven's focus on worship is this idea of like, look at everything created comes from you, so therefore you are worthy of praise and honor and glory. Revelation 5, 8, 13, I just want to read this last thing. The elders cried out, the people cried out. Revelation 5, 13, John says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and listen to this, and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Everything on earth and under the earth. I so believe, as Philippians 2 talks about, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would plead with you, do that now while you're on the earth and not under the earth. Do that now while you're alive. Isn't that an unbelievable thought? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It's like so weird to think about your favorite celebrity, your famous person. The person who mocks God, belittles God with that same tongue, they're going to be like, Jesus is Lord. It's unbelievable. Every president that's ever lived, every media person, every person, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 5.13 says that. Philippians 2 says that. Why? Because Jesus is over it all. He is preeminent over creation. We'll, we'll move on, but I just want to sit in that. Jesus is preeminent over creation. Number two is this thought. Jesus is preeminent over life. Now, I kind of just read it, but just hear the verse again. Jesus is preeminent over life. Verse 16, if you would look, look down at verse 16. It says, for by him all things, everyone say all things. All things were created. All things, and it, I'll move on, were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. So the idea is this, like the aim is Jesus. It's for him. So not only is he just over creation this way, but he's also, everything's moving towards him and for him. Um, St. Augustine, who wrote some amazing, you know, Christian literature, and you might know some of his famous quotes. This is the most famous one, but he says in Colossians 1, it was reading through Colossians where he writes a famous uh, quote. He says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. Notice that. He basically looks at Colossians 1 and he goes, you know what? I've realized my heart has been so restless because I was created for you. And here's the thing, like, sometimes we think I'm created for what? I'm created for work. I'm created to be a good dad, husband. We think we're created for something. Like, why are we here? That question of why are we here? The question of why are we here is settled in the person of Jesus. Why are you here? Hey, listen, you are created for him. 
I think one of the best things we as adults and our children, like getting in at a young age, why are you here? You are here for Jesus. You're created by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything, the aim is Jesus, to know him. This is eternal life, Jesus said, John 17. This is eternal life, to know you and your son. Just to know you. The aim, it's, it's him. This is why Augustine goes, man, my heart has been so restless until it rests in you. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's like, you know, I've tried all of these things creation has to offer. Like, I've tried it. Maybe you're like, I've tried the whole sex, money, power sort of thing, the relationship sort of thing. It's kind of left, left me empty and void and kind of like you feel like I'm being used because you were not created for those things. You were created for something that's so much better, and it's not a thing, it's a person. And, and this is what I love about it. A book of Ecclesiastes radically changed me around 8 to 19. When you're reading it, you're just, just putting things into perspective. And he's like, don't you realize that the, eternity has been placed into your heart? And so that's why we're like, why are we just these never-satisfied beasts? It is so funny. You look at kids, and it's always so clear when you see it through kids, but it's for us. But you're like, I can, I can give you the best day ever. And then one thing goes wrong. You're like, this is the worst day. And you're like, you selfish monster. Like, you had everything today you ever wanted. And because I said it's 8.30, go to bed. You're like, I hate you. You're like, what? Like, your heart is just never satisfied. Just never satisfied. Why? There is this just eternal void. This thing where it's like, okay, I'll put a temporary thing into an eternal void thing. And that temporary thing never fulfills that eternal void thing. And so Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity, this eternal void in your heart. Why? Because only an eternal God can fill that eternal void. There's like this, we're just mass consumers and nothing satisfies and everything's like cotton candy and you eat it and you're like, I'm still hungry. And the point is because there's just this eternal void and God's like, no, no, it can only be fulfilled and satisfied by me. We're created by him and for him, he says. Colossians 3.3 3 says this, and we'll get to this obviously later as we start this book. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hear that? You have died. It's no longer you who lives. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is now your life. That's why he'll say later, when Christ, who is our life, appears, everything's for him. He is now your life. He's now what you live for. That's your life. What is life? That philosophical, what is life? Jesus. Jesus. You've died. Your life is hidden with him. You know, I think um, some of the hard parts about when you first get married is um, <laughs> when you get married and you talk, I'm talking to a lot of people who are getting married or now newly married, it's weird, right? It's different. You give access to everything. So you kind of go from like doing your own thing and now you're like, hey, it's, our, it's ours. It's all ours. Come on in. And you're kind of doing like your own thing and you're like, hey, why are you doing that thing? Like, this is how we do it. You're like, that's how you do it. It's, it is weird at first. You know, I remember, like, the first time, like, you know, share to bed's fun. And then you're like, hey, can you scoot over? Like, it's getting hot. <laughs> you know? Like, it's fun. This is great. But this is, like, a little much. You know, you have access to everything. I remember, like, you know, having the remote. And you're like, oh, you want the remote, too? It's too bad. I don't know. There's, there's things, like, you give everything's access. I do remember, and it doesn't gross me out now, but maybe it sounds gross to some of you guys. I remember the first time, like, looking and, like, turning and seeing Kimber brushing with my toothbrush. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I couldn't find mine. I'm like, that, no. And we don't do that. And she's like, yeah. And now it's like insanely normal. It's already gross you out. But it's, it's so like everything. You have access to everything. It's like, it, there's nothing that's like, this is mine. You, I mean, you shared bank accounts, shared everything. It's two become one. And, and it, it is bizarre. It's bizarre when I do premarital counseling. Everything? Like, yeah, everything. You're given access to everything. And here's the idea. When you say, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to live for you. What you're saying is, Jesus, I give you access to everything. 
Jesus, you have access to everything. Well, I want that. Well, <laughs> everything but that. Like, no, like, that's, that's not what that means. He's preeminent over life. When Christ, who is our life, the, the point is, it's not like Jesus can be Lord of some things. I love how Francis Schaeffer said it, and you might know this, but he said it so well. He said, if Christ is not Lord of all, Christ is not Lord at all, right? It's not enough to be like, he's Lord of some things. He has to be Lord of all things, all things, all things, all things created through him and for him and by him. Jesus is preeminent over life. There has to be that sense of Jesus, I give you it all. I do get it. I get there's this fear sometimes, you guys, of like, but, you know, I have so much sin and junk, and I'll come to Jesus once those things are dealt with. Then I'll give him my life. It's like you give him your life, and he deals with those things. And I do think that I can even fall into the trap of like, oh, let me just kind of, this just feels out of place. And like, Jesus, and come to me. Come to me. Like, I want to give you rest. Why are you still trying to fix this up on your own? Like, why are you still trying to clean yourself off? off? It just never works. It's like, come to him. He is your life. So it's not like, let me, let me clean up my life, and then I'll give him my life. Just give him your life. And I think we just do it backwards so often. I'll clean up my life, then give it to him. He's like, I want it. It's unbelievable. Because it's so cool how you can just give, what do, you, what do we really bring to the table? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when you think about people getting married and that idea, it's like, you're, they're usually equally yoked in that sense of like, wow, that's so cool. Like, you both have strengths, you both have weaknesses, you support each other. It's like, here's Jesus and here's us. You know, like, hey, I'm bringing this to the table, my sin. It's like, awesome. Perfect. Great, great exchange, right? But it's, it's so beautiful. Like, he's like, just, I want that. I want you as you are. He is preeminent over life. All things created through him and by him and for him. Paul could not be more clear. He's over creation. He's the priority of creation and of your life. And here's the third point and last point, and there's kind of two things to this, but I'll just say it one. Jesus is preeminent over death. So Jesus is preeminent over creation. He's preeminent over life. Paul says he's preeminent over death. Now, bear with me. Verse 18, here's how he says it. And Jesus, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then everything, he might be preeminent. So two things. He's saying Jesus is preeminent over the church. He's preeminent over death. But if you actually look at this, he's like, because of Jesus being the firstborn of death, because he conquered death, obviously he's the head of the church. Jesus died to rise again. Let's just look at the first part because I don't want to confuse you with this. So first of all, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. So here's what I love. Um, if you actually read the book of Ephesians, a lot of it's talking about like the body of Christ and our role. First Corinthians talks about that, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians. Colossians has more of like the sake of not the body of Christ, the head of the body. So Colossians, like, we're, you know, or Corinthians, we'll talk about the body, the gifts, Ephesians 4, the offices of the church, the body. We talk about the church body. Jesus here is called the head of the body. He's over it all. So Jesus, he says, let's break that down. He is the head of the church. This is his. What, what he says, what he thinks, we do. Like, he's just like, all right, go love each other. Go love. Like, he's the head. We're the body. We fulfill what he wants. He's over it all. He, I love what Paul calls him. Like, he's the chief shepherd. When Christ, who is our chief shepherd, he's the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He, he's over it all. So Jesus is the head. And you have to know this, obviously. This is not, it's, it's funny when I talk to Christians who've been coming here for like a while, like it's like for years. I've talked to people who've come here for a couple of years, like it's so cool that at your church, I'm like, your church? First of all, our. Second of all, Jesus's. Actually, that's first of all. But it's like, oh, your church. I'm like, first of all, you're part of this church. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, we're, we're the body. Jesus is the head. This is his church. We need to be part of it. 
Thank you, Jesus, for that. What a privilege. What a privilege that you are the head of the body. He's the, he's the head of the church. We look to him. We surrender to him. He's the foundation of the church, as we're told in Matthew 16. He's, he's just, he is it. We look to Jesus. We study Jesus. We reflect on the person of Jesus. We talk through the Old Testament looking for Jesus because it's about him. It's by him and for him. It's all about Jesus. And that's what the whole point of church. Like whatever we're going through, whatever lesson, listen, we could do a teaching on marriage, and the point is it's about Jesus. We do a teaching on fill in the blank. It's still about Jesus. Like you have to see that. We can't miss the point of this. I don't want to just like teach morals. If you even teach morals, it's coming from the person of Jesus. Like everything's about Jesus and comes from Jesus. It's his. It's from him and for him and through him. And this is how Paul's saying it. And he's the head of the church. And notice this. He's the firstborn, the priority, he says. And we'll break that down. He's the head of the body of the church. And he says the firstborn from the dead. Same thing, same idea, the prototokos. He's the priority of death. Now, that's, that's an amazing ter- term. He's saying Jesus is over death. Really think about this. People have died and rise, rose again according to the Bible, right? Jairus' daughter died, came back to life. Lazarus died and came back to life. The widow's son died and came back to life. People have died and come back to life, but then they died again. <laughs> it's a weird thought. Like, imagine, like, I don't know, even that. Just, like, come back to life. Like, oh, I guess, no, I don't want to be back. Like, but you're back. Or you're like, okay, like, I, here I am. And then you're about to d- die again. And you're like, oh, here it goes again. Like, you, you kind of had that experience already. But they died. They, they rose again just to die. Jesus rose again to never die again. So Jesus is the only one, first one, you would say. Um, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15 like this. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's the first one to die and to rise again to never die. So Jesus died, rose again, never died. He's the prototokos over death. That's why Paul mocks death, which is such a bizarre thing when you think about it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is like, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell or Hades, where is your victory? Paul is looking at this thing we all will face, and he's able now to like mock it and say, you know what? Jesus conquered you, so therefore I will conquer you. Jesus conquered sin, hell, death. There is this weird thing, and I, I know I kind of addressed it a couple weeks ago with time, but there is this weird thing that haunts all of us called death. I really kind of do hate, just side note, I really hate like the new atheist perspective where the only meaning to life is because there's death. That's absolutely bogus. It's bogus. So me looking into my daughter's eyes, it only has beauty and meaning because one day they'll end. No. It has beauty and meaning because according to Jesus, I can do that forever with her in heaven, with Jesus. The thing is this. I think we all know, like, really, is it just we, we go through this life, we die, and that's it? Like, we struggle with that. We struggle with the idea of, like, there's Hitlers who do terrible, terrible things, kill millions and millions of people, they take their own life, and that's it. And then we all long for this thing called justice. Like, we're like, is that really fair? Like, he just, it just ends there? What is that? And why do we all think there's something more? Why does every culture, civilization, like there's always this emphasis around, around resurrection? I think there's this idea of resurrection everywhere you look because there's going to be resurrection. And here's someone who died and rose again to never die and says, let me tell you what happens. Let's talk about that. You know, it's bizarre, obviously. I've been in a weird spot to do a funerals for young age, people older. It's weird. It's hard. Sometimes it's beautiful when you get to the end of someone's life and you can actually like, celebrate. Like, that's so cool. It's awful when you're with like a teenager or someone in their 20s and you're like, this is not going to be a fun one. It doesn't really matter though. It's still death. It's still just the end. I think everyone kind of reflects on this. I'm listening to a book. It's not a Christian book. I'm listening to this book right now by this Jewish doctor who, he's a Jewish hospice doctor. And he basically, from his perspective, and it's not, again, not a Christian book, but it's interesting to hear his take and all, everyone's like last words, last sayings, the things they wish they'd done, the things they, they wish they didn't do how they spent their time, 
it's kind of interesting to hear the take of that from the world. And sometimes you hear that and you're like, it just feels so hopeless. When you're like, so what's the end? And here's the thing. I love this because this thing that haunts all of us doesn't have to haunt all of us. This thing, this reality that we're all going to face, Paul can look at and just say, hey, death, I'm not scared of you anymore. Like, I love that. I don't know what movie that is. I'm like, I'm not scared of you anymore. I don't know. I'm thinking Home Alone. I don't know. Maybe. But I love that thought of just like this thing that has haunted all of us. You're like, I don't have to fear this. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though you die, you shall live. I cling to that, man. I cling to these, these promises around the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I look at the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. I have to cling to that. It doesn't make sense. These cowards, these people who were fearful at the cross, running, fleeing, and now here they are, as bold as you can be, saying, kill me, kill me. Go ahead and kill me. What are you going to do? Make me be with Jesus? What happened? What turned people from hiding and cowering to saying, you can take my life, my kid's life, my wife's life. The worst thing you're doing is just bringing me to Jesus. What happened? They saw a resurrected Jesus. They saw someone who faced death, defeated it, and conquered it, and go, and I get to participate in that because of Jesus. That is unbelievable. I love the book of Job for many reasons, but Job's a guy who, as you know, suffers it all, goes through it all, loses it all, like literally loses everything except his wife who's bitter and saying, curse God to die, and he loses his kids, he loses everything, and here's what happened in Job 19. Job says, some of those powerful words I think written in scripture, he says, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Yo, listen to that boldness. I know that my Redeemer lives. He's not a dead God. He's a living God. And I know that after my skin is destroyed, I know after this body is destroyed, I know that I'm going to see him with these eyes that have already been destroyed. After this body of flesh is destroyed, I'm going to see him with my eyes, not another. Do you know that? I'm going to see him with these eyes that are destroyed. Because Jesus promises to resurrect me. Josiah Graves in the tomb, one day out of the tomb because of Jesus Christ. Body that has been filled with sin will be made new. The body that Je is still was Jesus when he resurrected, just glorified, resurrected Jesus who's walking through walls and flying into heaven. <laughs> but I love that. Like sin is removed from our body. Death, decay, taken away. Job's like, I know my Redeemer lives. I'm going to see him with my own eyes how my heart yearns within me. That is a different take than the modern take, I think, of death. He goes, take it all away. I have my Redeemer and I'll be with him. I, I will live again. So Paul's argument, and let's just make it really clear, he says at the very end that he might be preeminent, right? That he might be preeminent. I'm giving you points, but these points are kind of pointless. He's preeminent over everything. That's what he says. So I can say he's preeminent over creation. He's preeminent over life, over death. Okay, I love Paul. He's just preeminent over it all. Jesus is over it all. Everything is subject to him. At his word, the mountains fall or are made. We are made new. Lazarus, come out, comes out. Just at the, Jesus is a spoken word. Everything is subject to that. So Paul's looking, going, he's the prototokos, man. He's the priority over it all. All things created through him and by him and for him. All things, so your life is for Jesus. Even your death is for Jesus. He is over it all. This is why Paul writes in Romans 14. Romans 14, 
Paul says it so profoundly, if we live, listen to this, please. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Do you hear that? If we live, hey, if you live, live to the Lord. You already are his. It's already all about him. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Isn't that an amazing promise? Whether you're living or dead, you're already the Lord's. Why? Because Jesus lived and died and lived again so that he could become the king of kings over both the dead and the living. The idea is Jesus lived and died and lived again. He's over it all. He is the preeminent one. He's the one we worship. If you do not know this person, Jesus, in this way, believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. It is so simple. Call upon him and you will be saved. Look to Jesus. We will all face this thing called death, but Jesus already went before us and faced that thing. And says, if you believe me, though you die, you shall live. Do you believe this? I love that. Do you believe this? He goes, yeah. Do you believe this? Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's over sin, hell, death. He's over it all. He's over it all. He conquered it all. He's the preeminent one. We look now to Jesus in faith. I just want to say this. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to the King of kings. We're going to praise him. This is a hymn and creed that was sung. So we're going to do this. We're going to sing to Jesus. But if you get, I just want to invite you to know this, Jesus. If you've never yet believed on Jesus, would you believe on Jesus? I want to be clear. At the end of worship, when it's done, we'll have some leaders standing up here. If you'd like to pray with myself or one of the other leaders, we would love to pray with you so you can know this Jesus. But we just want to invite you to, whether you're a Christian or not, we want you to know that Jesus is the preeminent one, and we want you to see him as he is. So why don't you just bow your head really quick, close your eyes. We just want to invite Jesus to take his rightful place in our lives again. And just basically invite him to say, Jesus, I have been living for something else. This is not just for non-Christians, Christians. Be honest. Has Jesus been preeminent? Has Jesus been over it all? And so just take a second and say, Jesus, you are the preeminent one. Take your rightful place. All things are created by you and for you. We just want you to be in your rightful place. Just allow Jesus, give him that invitation. Say, come in, take that place. Not my finances, not my preferences, not my children, not my will, not my job. Jesus, be the preeminent one. Just, I'm gonna give you guys a second to talk to him and I'll pray.